What do Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Marie Curie, and Albert Einstein have in common? What makes some people so spectacularly innovative, producing triumph after triumph, often in fields in which they have no specialized training? In this episode of the Ivy Podcast, we're going to find out from NYU Stern School of Business professor Melissa A. Schilling, drawing upon original research from her latest work, Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. Schilling delves deeply into the lives of history's greatest geniuses to identify the traits and experiences that led them to become serial breakthrough innovators. About six years ago, I'll say 2010, I had been teaching innovation for over 20 years, as he mentioned. I've also got a textbook in the area. Uh, it's the number one textbook in innovation strategy now, and it's in its fifth edition. It's in seven languages. So I thought I knew the field. You know, I, I have to, revising the book forces you to go and research innovation and research creativity all the time and to really stay on top of it. Because a textbook isn't about what you know. It's not about your research. It's about everybody's research, right? So I'd been teaching for a long time. In 2010, Steve Jobs was not looking particularly well. He was looking pretty thin. And students started coming up to me and saying things like, what's going to happen? Right? What's going to happen to Apple? How much of the magic that we have seen Apple produce was in Steve Jobs the man? Or how much of that is a myth? How, how much of it is actually in the organization, like in the routines and the norms? How much has, could it be passed down to a successor? Right? They wanted to know whether or not Apple would still be innovative after Steve Jobs was gone. And fundamentally, they also wanted to know, how can I be like Steve Jobs? Right? What made him like that? And I thought, surely this answer has to be in the research somewhere. And I scoured the work on creative genius, and I read all of Dean Simonton's work, and all the work on creativity, and all the work on innovation. And I realized we didn't have good answers to that question, which was surprising to me. And uh, you know, and it started to bother me the way like a little grain of sand might bother you in your shirt. And uh, the problem is that the question itself is not well suited to our research. So, you know, as a professor, you have to publish or perish and publish means research in my field. And most of our research is large scale empirical research. So if you pull up my papers, you're going to find a lot of studies with lots and lots of data. And the same thing is true for psychologists. They can either do a large scale study or they can do a laboratory study. Neither one of those studies is particularly good for studying serious breakthrough innovators like Steve Jobs, right? Because you could grab a tremendously large sample of students and run a survey on them and not have a single Steve Jobs in there, or not find them if they're in there, or not have reliable results even if they're in there. And you can't get Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Thomas Edison into the laboratory either. So it's a pesky problem. It's not well suited to publishing and getting tenure as an academic or as a professional researcher. So for the most part, people had not tackled this. There are a few uh, full professors who had tried and written opuses to this work, but it's, it was a relatively sparse body of research. And I thought, well, I'm a full professor. I can do whatever I want. And I just wanted to know what drove Steve Jobs. I just really had to know at this point. It had become a burning question for me. So I started studying him as a person. Now, I already knew a lot about Apple because I'd been teaching the Apple case for 10 years at that point. I'd written stuff about Apple. I knew about the company, but I wanted to know now about the person. What was his childhood like? What were his beliefs? What were his biases? What were his experiences with his parents? What made him the person he was? And ultimately, how much of his innovative output was really something special about him versus timing, circumstance, Steve Wozniak, Joni Ive, right? And I started immersing myself in him, which I was lucky. I was on sabbatical. I could just make this a full-time project, learn about Steve Jobs. And I read everything, every article, every interview, 
everything I could get my hands on. But a funny thing started to happen is that I started to recognize traits in him because it turned out Steve Jobs had a lot of interesting commonalities with this other innovator that I had studied, which is Dean Kamen. Now, a lot of you won't know the name Dean Kamen, so I'm gonna start by telling you a couple of his inventions, and then I'll tell you the one that you've heard of. But the inventions that he's most proud of, he invented the world's first portable drug infusion pump, which revolutionized the care of diabetes. If you've seen a type one diabetic with a little box attached to their skin with a monitor that can inject insulin when they need it, that was Dean Kamen, and it made a huge difference in people's survivability and their, their lives with, with diabetes. He invented the world's first portable dialysis machine. Used to be if you needed dialysis, you went and spent an entire day at the hospital. It was miserable. It was degrading. It, it made it very tough to hold down a job. It was, it was just a difficult, difficult thing. And he said, it doesn't need to be like that. We can restore people's dignity by just making this a portable device. And he invented a portable dialysis machine, revolutionized dialysis. Then he, uh, one time he saw someone on a wheelchair trying to get someplace and there was a curb and they couldn't get up the curb and it broke his heart. And he said, that's just not right. And he invented the iBot Mobility Wheelchair, which can climb stairs. It can also raise a person up to eye level, which he thinks is very important for having, restoring, again, the dignity of the human experience. So he invented the iBot Mobility Wheelchair and prosthetic arms and all these things. Well, the iBot Mobility Wheelchair is based on gyro technique. Uh, technology. It's a balancing technology because basically you have to get a wheelchair to balance on two wheels, which is harder than it might sound. And that is the technology that led to the thing that you've heard of, which is the Segway personal transporter. So the Segway became a bit of a I mean, it's, it's got a storied history, and, and, it's, and people find it amusing. And a lot of people think that Dean Kamen is the guy who rolled off the cliff and died. He's not. Um, <laughs> It's a little frustrating to Dean Kamen that that's what you know him for because he's won so many awards and medals of technology and, and all these things. But probably the most amazing thing about Dean Kamen is that he technically never graduated from high school. He went to college a bit without finishing high school, never graduated from college either. He has revolutionized medical science and all sorts of fields. He's invented the slingshot water purifier that can turn anything wet into drinkable water. And he demonstrated that by urinating into it and then drinking it. Um, but if you study Dean Kamen and you study Steve Jobs, you start going, well, there's some strange commonalities here that couldn't possibly be connected to innovation. Like they both wear the same clothes every day and neither one of them graduated from college and they're both a little weird and a little bit socially uh, dysfunctional and they both had very strange homes. And at first you think these have got to be really peculiar coincidences, but it turns out they're not. And so I ended up deciding I'm gonna study a bunch of these people and I'm gonna see what is reliable and I'm gonna take everything that's common among them but different from the average person and I'm gonna integrate that with the science of innovation and creativity and I'm gonna see if we can explain how these things work, why they work, why we would see these commonalities between these innovators and uh, it has been the funnest project of my whole career. And it was a high risk project. There was a pretty good chance that nothing would pan out. We wouldn't find anything useful. Uh, that's not what happened, actually. It was an incredibly illuminating experience and there's a lot we can learn. And one of the best parts is that even the things that are unique and inimitable about some of these people operate on innovation through a mechanism that we can tap even if we don't have the trait. 
And that's super cool to know, right? So you don't have to be a genius innovator with photographic memory to achieve some of the same things that innovators who were geniuses with photographic memories achieved. And uh, we'll talk about how. So uh, these are not one hit wonders. These are people who spent their whole lives innovating over and over again, because we need to study people who are serial breakthrough innovators to know that we're isolating something that's about that person or about their life as opposed to right time, right place. So there's a lot of people who had a great invention, but only the one. And in that situation, it's difficult to separate person from context. So I only looked at serial breakthrough innovators. I looked at uh, Elon Musk. You have all heard of Elon Musk, right? He sold his first video game at the age of 12. He taught himself to program computers at the age of 10. Now, you know, you, you, you look pretty young out here, so maybe you don't understand what a feat that was. When Elon and I were 10, all right, computers used DOS, right, they used DOS, okay, on a monochrome screen with a little green cursor. He had to learn basic, you know, which none of you have learned basic, I'm pretty, well, maybe, maybe a few of you, most of you haven't, uh, and taught himself to program when nobody else was programmed. There was no YouTube tutorials because there was no internet. All right, so what he achieved was uh, amazing even at the age of 12, and he sold that software program, which probably taught him a lot about himself at that exact moment, like, I created a software game and sold it at the age of 12. What else can I do in the world? Uh, then in college, he started up an internet company, which he subsequently sold to Compaq for several million dollars. Then he started up a company which would be merged with another company that would create a bunch of products, but the one you know is PayPal, which he sold to eBay. And he personally got 156 million out of that sale, right? By the 28, he's 28 years old, and got 156 million out of that sale. Now, at this point, most people would have said, I'm going to go buy an island and start drinking margaritas. Uh, that's, that's not what he did, right? He's the kind of person that has to be on a project, and it has to be an important project. So he, he asked himself, what would be important to do? And he happened to look around, and he hears that NASA has no intention of going to Mars. And he thought to himself, what? NASA's not going to Mars? Well, rolls up his sleeves, I guess I'll have to get us to Mars myself. And he starts studying rocket science and builds his own prototype of a reusable rocket and revolutionizes, uh, revolutionizes space travel, right? Does what this whole space industry said was impossible. And then, of course, there's a little thing called Tesla. So first automotive company to go public since 1956 when Ford went public. First U.S. automotive company to go public. So clearly a serial breakthrough innovator of staggering proportions. This is Marie Curie, and Marie Curie, she had to overcome so many of the obstacles that he had to overcome, and then a whole bunch more, because she was a woman in a time when science said, we don't want women, we don't even want women in higher education, we're not gonna admit them into university. So most European universities did not allow women in at the time that Marie Curie was growing up, so the fact that she was able to do what she did is, staggering. To read her story is both inspiring and painful. Uh, she discovered polonium, she discovered radium, she discovered radioactivity as an atomic property. She invented a bunch of the uh, methods for isolating radioactive isotopes that we use in medicine. She also invented a portable x-ray unit that she personally took, made a bunch of them. She invented the idea of a portable x-ray unit and then created a bunch of them, took them out into the field in World War One, and is personally attributed with saving over a million soldiers' lives. So truly a, a staggering person. This is Nikola Tesla. 
Uh, he's the person after whom the car company Tesla is named in honor of him. He was the weirdest innovator I studied, probably the most brilliant innovator I studied. If you had to pick one person, my book is like eight biographies, but if you had to pick one person that you just got to learn about, it's Nikola Tesla. This guy was, he, he was amazing. So first of all, he had a photographic memory. And his photographic memory, he had eidetic memory as a child, which is this intense visual memory. It was so strong that he would see things right in front of them as if he were there, and he couldn't tell the difference between them and real life. So for a big chunk of his childhood, everybody thought he had hallucinations. They thought he was crazy. He thought he was crazy. But he learned to harness that visual memory to turn himself into a computer-aided design machine. Right? He could do what computer-aided design systems do today. He could design a, a system, test it, turn it around, adjust it, refine it, run it, see something wrong, fix it, test it, adjust it. And when he was convinced the whole thing was perfect, then they would put it into physical form and it would be perfect, which is an astonishing thing. Right? That's pretty astonishing. So he is the one who invented alternating current electricity, which is what all of our electrical systems are based on today. He also invented wireless communication. For years, this was in dispute. Guglielmo Marconi had been credited with inventing wireless communication. But it turns out Guglielmo Marconi stole it from Tesla, and it came out in a whole big patent case right after Tesla died, which is a shame, because I think he would have liked to have gotten the credit during his lifetime. He invented a whole bunch of lighting systems fluorescent lighting systems, neon lighting systems. He invented the first remote-controlled robots. He was also a very weird dude. He was extremely weird. He had all kinds of phobias. He couldn't stand anything spherical. So if a woman was wearing pearls, he couldn't even be near her. He used to have to um, measure any food on his plate had to be perfectly divisible by its cubic root or he wouldn't eat it. He would often walk around buildings three times. He was extremely sensitive to stimuli, so sometimes light would hurt him and sounds would hurt him. He would swear that the sound of a fly landing on, his on a table hurt his ears with the thud. He could feel vibrations of trains like 100 miles away, and that's a pretty straightforward sign of a dopamine irregularity. Uh, he also only slept about two hours a night, if he slept at all, also a sign of a dopamine irregularity. Uh, he fell in love with a pigeon and was otherwise celibate. So he was celibate for his entire life, except for the pigeon who he believed to be his soulmate. He was a weird dude. I'm, I'm not, it's, there's just no other way to phrase it. But his traits were so extreme. Like it was like he had these interesting traits turned up, spinal tap reference coming to 11. Uh, <laughs> And because they were turned up so high, you noticed things about him that you hadn't noticed in the other innovators. So then you go and you look and you say, well, do any of these other innovators have them? And they do. You just didn't notice. So for instance, I had never seen anything published on how much any of these other innovators sleep. It turns out, not very much, significantly less than the population average. Thomas Edison and Dean Kamen both slept four hours a night. Marie Curie slept between four hours and five hours a night, as did Benjamin Franklin. Elon Musk slept a sleeps a luxurious six and a half hours a night. Of the, of the, uh, the only person in the set who slept a full night was Einstein, who said he needed ten and a half hours of sleep a night. Uh, so it's interesting. Again, probably elevated dopamine. Dopamine can make you a little manic. 
It can make your brain fire a little quicker. It can make you more open to divergent thinking, which is connected to creativity. It can also make you schizophrenic and manic depressive. So if you were ever wondering why there's been this association between madness and genius, it's probably dopamine. And now that, now that this, hopefully this book will come out and people do the research and nail it all down and we can figure everything out. But, um, and also if you're wondering, there was a few studies, a few studies a few years back that said Parkinson's patients uh, suddenly discover their creative abilities. And I heard that and I immediately thought, nope, it's the levodopa. And then subsequent studies went in and tested it and it is the levodopa. So it's, it's actually amazing to me that levodopa is not the recreational drug of choice among young professionals. But don't do it because if you're, if you, if you take, it's very similar to Adderall. Yeah. If you take too much, if you take, also meth, similar to meth. If you take too much, Dopamine, if you take too much dopamine or too much meth or too much Adderall, what happens is your very clever brain starts turning off your dopamine receptors. So then when the synthetic dopamine wears off, you got nothing. Now you're a Parkinson's. You, you, you have symptoms of Parkinson's. You're, you're in, you don't move. You don't want to talk. You don't feel any pleasure from anything, sex, food, nothing. So you want to keep those receptors on. At most, Coffee. Coffee is a mild dopamine stimulant. Exercise is a mild dopamine stimulant. Stay away from the levodopa unless you have Parkinson's. Oh, sorry, we skipped Dean Kamen. I already talked about Dean Kamen. Dean Kamen, again, serial breakthrough innovator from the time he was a, a teenage kid. He was a somewhere, I think he was about 17 the first time he got the contract to run the New Year's Eve Times Square ball dropping. 17. He also got the lighting contracts for all the major museums around New York. He was just an astonishing person. So uh, this is uh, just for fun. This is Nikola Tesla's uh, uh, laboratory in Colorado Springs. One thing you may not know about Nikola Tesla, again, another funny little commonality with Elon Musk, Nikola Tesla was also obsessed with Mars and convinced that he had communicated with Mars, that he had intercepted messages from Mars. And we were Today, we think maybe he intercepted messages from Guglielmo Marconi. We're not entirely sure, but um, Mars is a big part of his history, too. Sometimes I think that Elon Musk is kind of the love child of Steve Jobs and Nikola Tesla. I don't know how it worked, but um, there's signs of it. This is Dean Kamen's water purifier. I already told you that it can turn anything wet into potable drinking water, and it's operated with a Stirling engine. A Stirling engine can turn anything into energy, so it's uh, primarily dung. So they're using this now for in developing countries because it turns out the biggest medical health innovation you can do worldwide is clean water. Oh, the whole space industry told Elon Musk, there's no, there's no way to make a reusable rocket. We've tried for 50 years. Give it up, kid. This is a fool's errand. Even uh, Neil Armstrong told Elon Musk that it was a stupid, that he would never do it. It couldn't be done. Uh, about last March, he did it. You know, that must have been a great moment for him. And then I'm sure you guys all saw the Falcon Heavy the other day, which was an even bigger rocket. So... What makes some people so spectacularly innovative? What is it? Can we learn it? Turns out there's some parts we can. We can also manage it in other people, and we can help our kids have it. The first one, this is a weird one, because I wasn't looking for this going into this research, 
But almost all of the innovators, I say almost because Benjamin Franklin is the outlier here, and I, and I think I've figured out why, but all of the others have this marked sense of separateness, this somewhat disconnected feeling from the social world, like they didn't fit in or they didn't belong or that its rules didn't apply to them. And uh, like Albert Einstein was the one who probably talked about it the most and articulated its role in his life. He said, I gang my own gait and have never belonged to my country, my home, my friends, or even my immediate family with my whole heart. Such a person no doubt loses something in the way of geniality and lightheartedness. But on the other hand, he is largely independent of the opinions, habits, and judgments of his fellow and avoids the temptation to take his stand on such insecure foundations. So what he had figured out way back then is that because he felt detached from the social world, he could ignore it. He could reject assumptions that had held back other scientists. And I, I don't know how much you know about Einstein, but he ended up completely revolutionizing physics by basically casting away all of these ideas that Newton had uh, turned into laws, basically, right? So people believed that a lot of Newtonian physics was, was fundamental principles, universal laws, that we now understood the universe. And Albert Einstein said, mm, there isn't any ether, and there is no absolute time. He cast away these things in a way that no other scientist would, primarily because he was separate from science. He had been rejected by academia. His professors didn't like him in school. He was disrespectful. He, he was brilliant, but he didn't like school because school was constraining for him. He didn't like the structure. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. So he wasn't, a, he wasn't good about showing up to class and he wasn't good about being deferent to others. And so when he graduated, his professors wouldn't write him the letters he needed to get an academic post. And he wrote to almost every major university of Europe and said, please, give me an academic post, and they all turned him down. So he took a job as a patent clerk. But even here as a patent clerk, he's like, I'm going to write articles on physics anyway. Even though it's not my role, even though I don't belong, even though people will think that I'm crazy, I'm going to write them anyway. And in four months, had five spectacularly huge revolutionary papers, one of which was the theory of relativity, another one which identified the whole notion of light waves and photons, another one which explained Brownian motion. So uh, an, incredibly, uh, an incredibly successful innovator because he didn't belong. That ends up teaching us something that we're going to see. Uh, Pierre, and Mir Pierre and Marie Curie were also really interesting in this regard. So they were very socially detached. They didn't have a lot of friends. They didn't socialize. They preferred to be in their lab all the time. And their lab was like a wooden shack uh, with just a, with a wood stove in the center of it. It was isolated. It was cold. It was uncomfortable. But they thought that was bliss. Now, they were so focused on their science that when they had their two daughters, they basically take, took their two daughters and gave them to Pierre's father to raise. And Pierre was this jovial, paternal, loving man. And the daughters say without him, they would have had these really bleak lives. So they basically gave up their daughters to be raised by someone else because they dreamed of living in the world quite removed from human beings. Now, Marie Curie, Eve Curie, her daughter, Marie Curie would go on to be the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, the first person of any gender to win two Nobel Prizes in two different fields. Uh, pretty amazing accomplishments, especially since they didn't want to give her a Nobel Prize because she was a woman. But what you may not know, because a lot of people know that about Marie Curie, what you may not know is that the next woman to get a Nobel Prize was her daughter, Irene Curie. Anyway, Irene and Eve grow up with the father-in-law. 
And Eve decides to write a biography about her mother right after her mother's death. And the biography is full of love and respect and adoration. She clearly worshiped her mother, but it's also full of pain and longing and pining for her mother, that she didn't get the attention that she would have wanted, the affection that she would have wanted. And she describes her mother after Pierre's death, especially as being this incurably lonely woman. But she explains it by saying, in all ages, women who burn to become great painters or great musicians have disdained the norm, love and motherhood. So you see that separateness so acutely, so such a strong sense of separateness, such an obsession on your science that she even was able to give up the care for children. And um, and part of my story is going to be part of my story here is that we don't all want to become breakthrough innovators. It's definitely not for everyone, right? There's a there's a price to be paid. But we're going to understand something about where breakthrough innovation comes from that'll help us nurture the breakthrough innovation in each of us and also help us to spot the people whose path is that path naturally and not try to change them from it, but to instead help them find joy in it. Uh, okay, Dean Kamen, he's, you know, I, he was a weird kid. He to this day is never married or never uh, had children. He decided at one point to buy an island called North Dumpling and build his own power grid and secede from the United States because he didn't want its rules to apply to him. This is how rule-defying he is, right? Steve Jobs, you may know, was so rule-defying that he uh, wouldn't put a license plate on his car. He often didn't wear shoes. When he did wear shoes, they were sandals and his feet were dirty. And he didn't shower very often and he didn't use deodorant. So he was often kind of smelly. He would stare intensely at people without blinking. Right? Rules just didn't apply to him. But here you can see the rule, this, this ability to reject the rules and its direct relationship with innovation. So when he told someone, I'm going to invent a wheelchair that can stand on two wheels and balance the way a human does, which is way more complicated than you may have realized. Your ability to adjust in real time your weight is a pretty impressive feat, actually. And he said, I'm going to make a wheelchair that does this by spinning its wheels so quickly in each direction that it can do this. And someone said, that's impossible. And he fired back and he said, don't tell me it's impossible. Tell me you can't do it. Right? And tell me it's never been done. But the only things we really know are Maxwell's equations, the three laws of Newton, the two postulates of relativity, and the periodic table. That's all we know that's true. The rest are man's laws. And so he's sweeping away a whole big swaths of chemistry and physics and saying, ah, maybe it's not right, you know, which is powerful, so powerful. Okay. I feel like the ding, like I'm supposed to change scenes or something. Uh, <laughs> the second trait I'm going to talk about here, hugely important. All the innovators had this one. This trait ends up being very important, not just in innovation, but in productivity in general, and also just leading a happy life. It's self-efficacy. And all these innovators had extreme self-efficacy. So let me tell you what that is. Self-efficacy is a type of confidence that's task-specific confidence where you fundamentally have a belief that you can overcome obstacles to achieve your goals. Now, it's different from general confidence, right? General confidence, some of these innovators, if you met them, they might not seem confident, right? They might not feel attractive or social or good at navigating a crowd in a bar. You know, there's a lot of things that they wouldn't have seemed confident in. But about getting stuff done, they were confident. They had had experiences in their lives that taught them, if I apply myself, I can overcome these obstacles and achieve my goals. And that is hugely powerful. So this is 
the epitome of self-efficacy. If there was a poster child for self-efficacy, it would be Musk, who when pe he's, people said, it's impossible to build a reusable rocket and make space travel affordable, he's like, I think I can do it, All right? That was pretty powerful. And uh, this is what Astro Teller says about him. He says, it's not just that he's built some exciting and really meaningful, positive things. That's great. But he's like a walking moonshot. He's so audacious, it seems limitless. Self-efficacy is Elon Musk's superpower. He's also, as we mentioned before, very brilliant. So he's got two pretty important superpowers. But the self-efficacy one, you can get and you can help the people around you get it, which is super cool. And I'll talk about that a little bit towards the end of the, of the talk. Nikola Tesla was 14 years old when he saw a sketch on a postcard of Niagara Falls. And he looked at it very closely and he told his father, I'm gonna harness the power of that one day. Right, and his father laughed. I mean, he was living in Croatia and you know, and his father was a minister, a Serbian Orthodox minister in Croatia. And here's his 14-year-old kid saying, I'm going to harness the power of that Niagara Falls. And his, so his father patted him on the head. Sure, sure, whatever you, whatever you say. Well, that's exactly what he did. He built the power station at the base of Niagara Falls that ended up shooting power hundreds of miles and astonishing the world with, with how far electricity could go. Up to that point, it had only ever been a couple of miles at most. So um, that's the Niagara Falls power station with three Tesla alternating current generators built in 1896. Okay, third thing, all of the innovators except one this time the outlier is Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison was not idealistic. And after I saw all the other innovators being idealistic, I was sure, surely Thomas Edison is idealistic. I just have to dig hard enough and look, which is biasing the research process. So there was a part of me that knew in my scientist's heart that I was committing a serious faux pas. But, but I couldn't find it. I could not find any trace of idealism in his life. And then what I did find was the money quote that he's not idealist, where he said about himself, I'm a practical man. I stay pretty close to the earth. I don't do that high level thinking about big far away stuff. I leave that to the other folks. That's not for me. So he said he was not idealistic. But the others were all keenly idealistic, right? Mars, Mars. Musk wants to get us to Mars because he thinks that's how he's gonna save our species. Right? He believes a catastrophic event will hit the Earth, and if we don't have a colony on Mars, we'll be over, and it matters to him. Tesla and Solar City are both because he wants to move us to renewable energy because he believes we will run out of energy. He's a fiercely idealistic person. And if you look at the way he plowed all of his millions that he made from the eBay sale, all of his personal money into those companies, knowing outright he even said, uh, you know, the probable outcome of Tesla is failure then you know for a fact that he was an idealistic guy. Um, Benjamin Franklin was also a very idealistic person. He, his whole life was lived with this idea of creating a free and egalitarian America. Uh, this is a nice quote. They who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. He went on to create 13 virtues of, of life that he tried to live by really firmly and um, I gotta watch the time a little bit. Okay, we're good. He actually gave up his relationship with his son uh, because his son was a British loyalist and he was so committed to a free and egalitarian America that he decided when it came between America and his son, he chose America. So again, a very keenly idealistic person. Now idealism is a powerful force because an idealistic goal that someone thinks is intrinsically noble 
and intrinsically important, provides an incredible amount of motivation. And one thing we know pretty well in the science of creativity is that intrinsic motivation drives a lot more creativity than extrinsic motivation, like rewards. In fact, you can undermine creativity by giving people rewards for it. You've probably seen the studies where kids come in and they draw, and then you pay them for it, and then they stop, and they're like, show me the money, right? Uh, we want intrinsic motivation. Idealistic goals are incre incredibly intrinsically motivating. But they also became a focus for the innovator to think big and to think far and to have their eye on the horizon somewhere really far out because they're working for something important. They work incredibly hard, sacrificing their leisure, sometimes their reputation, sometimes their money, sometimes their health and even their family because the cause is more important than themselves. Does that make sense? The cause matters more than their own comfort and happiness, right? And because the cause matters more than their own comfort and happiness, they're also incredibly resilient to criticism and failure. They don't care if you don't like them. I mean, they might care a little, but they don't care enough because they think the cause is so important that they're going to endure it. They're going to endure your criticism and keep marching on and pursuing that goal because it's intrinsically valuable to them. All right, and uh, so pretty cool stuff. Uh, this is why Dean came and pursued the slingshot even when nobody else would fund his work. He said he discovered early on that the big companies of the world have figured out that the countries that need, need clean water don't have the money to pay for it. So big companies weren't particularly interested in this project. So he plowed all his own money into it. And he said, you know, I just believe in it. It might fail, but you've got to try. Look at the state of the world, it's a mess. What if we can fix it? So he's not in it for the money. I'm, I'm not sure everybody realizes that, and I'm not sure that all the stockholders would be thrilled to realize that. <laughs> um, but it does make him a pretty persistent and motivated person. Okay, uh, I mentioned that Thomas Edison was not idealistic, so what drove him? Because he worked really hard too. So another thing all the innovators have, and Thomas Edison had it in spades, is need for achievement, which is this drive to have, to, to accomplish things. And Thomas Edison actually liked patents a lot more than money. He loved to get patents and to accrue them quickly and beat the other guy to get a patent. And also just a fundamental love of work, that thrill of being up against something that's hard enough to challenge you and yet not thwart you. That's what Csikszentmihalyi calls flow. If any of you have seen his book on flow, it's a great book, you should pick it up and read it. The idea is that there's a level of working hard at something, like maybe you're playing chess, or maybe you're playing tennis against someone you're really well matched against, or maybe you're digging a hole in the backyard because you've decided you're gonna put in that koi pond, right? But working hard can feel really good. And my best example of this is a border collie. Have any of you ever encountered a border collie? Border collie? So a border collie is an unusual, wonderful dog. It's a herding dog, and it works hard. It loves to work. It'll herd anything. It'll herd children, cats, chickens. <laughs> and you don't have to train it to herd, and you don't have to reward it to herd. It wants to herd. That is the reward. And there's a saying among dog people. I, I hang out with dog people. There's a saying around dog people, if you don't give a border collie a job, it will find its own and you will not like it. <laughs> so you have to give them a job. Well, to my mind, Thomas Edison was a border collie. He loved to work. He said, you know, work made the world a paradise. 
paradise for me. I never intend to retire. And other people looked at his energy. By the way, he, he didn't even go home at night. He would just, when he had to get those four hours of sleep, he would just lay down on a bench in his laboratory. So there are lots of pictures like this of, of Thomas Edison. Sometimes his head would just be on a pile of books. But the people around him said that he was almost superhuman in his energy and his love of work. They said, I have often felt that Mr. Edison never could comprehend the limitations of the strength of other men, as his own physical and mental strength have always seemed to be without limit. And this is Francis Upton, one of the people he worked closely with for most of his career. So just a border collie. Timing and resources. So right about now you should be saying, yeah, but what about right time, right place? Surely it matters, and it does matter, right? One of the ways you know it matters is that I could have populated my entire book just with people from the IT revolution, right? So when there's a big explosion, some sort of technological shock that makes the world ripe or fertile for a breakthrough innovation, you get a bunch of innovators all of a sudden. And it's not that suddenly we had a bunch of people that had traits to become innovators. Those people are always there. It's just that there are time periods when there are innovations that are sort of ripe for the taking. So both Edison and uh, Tesla and Westinghouse, who this building is, I guess this is a Westinghouse building we're in, and Alexander Graham Bell and, and a bunch of others, they were all unleashed by electrification. It was the electrification of America that, that made all these innovators rise at approximately the same time. So timing certainly matters. Now, one thing that didn't matter, and I got to say as a business school professor, it threw me back a little bit on my heels. Money didn't seem to matter. Now, when you're a business school professor, I'm a strategy professor, strategy and innovation, you spend a lot of time worrying about capital. We want venture capitalists and angel investors and seed capital and government grants. And surely if we found a way to put enough money in the hands of all the would-be entrepreneurs and innovators out there, we would boost their productivity. And it might be true, but I will say this, none of these innovators had any money. None of them when they started. Dirt broke, all right? They, uh, um, Albert Einstein, you know, his father basically, his company failed and it had closed and Albert Einstein, you know, got this job as a patent clerk. Steve Jobs, as you know, started his company with $1,300 that he got from selling a VW bus and Steve Wozniak's calculator. $1,300, what they started with. Marie Curie worked as a governess to scrape together a little bit of money and traveled to Paris to go to the Sorbonne, which was basically free, and lived in an unheated attic and, and ate, uh, you know, a couple of raisins and a piece of bread every day. I mean, broke. Benjamin Franklin arrived in New York with enough money for exactly two rolls of bread and bootstrapped his way to success. Dean Kamen was a high school student when he started tinkering and within a couple of years was making more money than both of his parents because he came from a working class family. Nikola Tesla had a little money when he left Europe to come to the United States, but he was robbed on the ship. So when he got to America, he had exactly four cents and a poem in his pocket. That's what he had, four cents in a poem. That's what he started with. Uh, Elon Musk, some people assume that he came from wealth, but what you have to understand is that Elon Musk had a very authoritarian father who said, you're going to stay in South Africa, and I will only pay for college if you stay in South Africa. And Elon Musk 
17 years old, not to be thwarted, realizes his mother was born in Canada and is entitled to a Canadian passport. So he takes her paperwork down, files and gets her a Canadian passport, then uses her Canadian passport to get himself a Canadian passport and runs away to Canada and shows up at a, at a cousin that he'd never even met's door and ends up working on a farm, shoveling grain, cleaning out boiler rooms, completely self-made man completely self-made and not, did not start with wealth at all. And then Thomas Edison, also from a working class family, at the age of 12, starts selling fruit and newspapers on a train, uh, ends up being so successful at it that he gets to hire two other boys. He's running a company with, with two employees at the age of 14 years old and operating his own newspaper. Uh, again, a very self-made person. So it was not money. It was not access to wealth that got these people start. It was sometimes access to other kinds of resources. So all of them had times when they needed access to some sort of expertise or technological resources. Thomas Edison's start can largely be attributed to one pivotal, pivotal, pivotal moment when uh, he was on the train, because remember he went back and forth on the trains, selling things on the trains. He was also a tinkerer. He w had a chemistry lab in his parents seller. He almost, he, he basically had no formal education at all. When he was born, he had a really abnormally large head. And so doctors decided there was something wrong with him, that he was delicate and that he should not be sent to school. So he was not sent to school. And then when they finally sent him to school, he was distractible, right? He was hyperactive and distractible. And one of the teachers said they thought he was addled and his indignant mother marched down and said, he's got more brains than you yourself and took him out of school and decided to homeschool him from that day on. So he was entirely homeschooled. But uh, what a mom, right? She was, he said his mother was the making of him. There's a lot of mother stories in this book, which are interesting. That's a whole study that needs to be done on its own. I haven't done it yet, but it's worth doing. Thomas Edison was on this train and he sees the station master's three-year-old playing on the tracks, on the other set of tracks, and there's another train coming, and nobody sees that he's on the tracks. So he jumps off the train, dives, grabs the kid, falls on the ground, scuffs up, cups up his, his ankle, and, and the kid gets cuts on the face, saves this kid's life. And the station master comes out, everybody has seen what's happened, and he's like, I owe you everything. Show up tomorrow, I will teach you to operate a telegraph. And that's how we get Edison, right? So interesting moment of timing and access to resources. Marie Curie, it, when she, she's brilliant, right? She decides to put herself through school. Uh, she pursues education really intensely because it was the only way to preserve Poland at that time. Uh, I'm not going to go into that whole story right now, because but it's a great story about how, why she ends up deciding to pursue education in a time when women didn't. Right, really women didn't. Uh, so she pursues education, but right at the time she's about to get her PhD is right when Rontgen discovers these mysterious rays and Becquerel discovers mysterious rays. So she decides to study the mysterious rays. Let's figure out what's causing rays. And ends up meeting a man named Pierre Curie, who is uh, also brilliant, also very socially disconnected, but falls madly in love with Marie. And he has invented a state-of-the-art electrometer, but it's hard to use. It's very finicky to use. So Becquerel couldn't figure out how to use it. So he trains Marie 
very carefully, hours and hours of work to use this electrometer. And it is that electrometer that enabled her to measure the tiny currents that led to her discovery of radium and polonium. So that's a pretty unique confluence of timing and resources. Steve Jobs recognized how much this had influenced his career trajectory. He said, I feel incredibly lucky to be at exactly the right place in Silicon Valley at exactly the right time historically where this invention has taken form. Um, 8.45, so I, oh, I have such a great, I wanna tell you a really quick story about him because not actually about him, but about Silicon Valley. During the war, before, during the war, Churchill saw that England was going to, was worried that, that England would fall to the Nazis. And England had a state-of-the-art magnetron that much better than any other country had at that time. And he was worried the Nazis were going to get it. So the guy who had invented the magnetron, Henry Tizard, he arranges for Henry Tizard to travel on a boat to the United States to give the magnetron to the United States under the condition that the United States would share the technology with England just to save it from the Nazis. And there was a fair amount of concern that the boat that Tizard was on would get bombed and sunk, but he makes it. Tizard brings the magnetron to Bell Laboratories. Shockley and Walter Breton, those guys all start working on this magnetron. They invent the integrated circuit. Shockley's uh, mother gets sick. So Shockley decides to move to Mountain View to take care of her because that's where his mother lives. And he founds a company called Shockley Computers, at, well, Shockley Integrated Circuits, in Mountain View, the heart of Silicon Valley. But Shockley is a complete, I think the technical term is asshole. Uh, he's, he's a jerk. He's a very difficult man. He's a eugenicist. He's a little bit, he's a lot of bit crazy, actually. And so all the people who worked around him decided to leave Shockley and form their own companies, one of whom is Fairchild Semiconductor, and Silicon Valley is born. Okay? Now, if Churchill hadn't sent the magnetron over, if Shockley's mother hadn't gotten sick and brought the technology to Mountain View, if he hadn't been a jerk, which caused the spawning of all of these other companies, we might not have Silicon Valley. And if we had not had all those sequence of events happen, you might not know who that guy was. Isn't that amazing? It's such path dependency. Okay, so let's get down to what we can learn. First of all, you need time to think and work alone. We can tap a lot of the advantages of separateness just by choosing to spend some time thinking about what we believe and challenging assumptions. This is especially important for kids. You don't want to overschedule kids. Kids need time to sit and write and think and read, not with screens because that's reacting to somebody else's ideas. They need to be forming their own ideas and forming their own thoughts about who they are and what they're interested in. Brainstorming groups do not work. We know they don't work. There's lots of psychology research showing they don't work. For some reason, companies still use them. Be the voice of dissent on that one. Say, hey, why don't we spend some time on our own first? And then you can point them to one of my articles on this or, or point them to some of the psychology on this. Brainstorming teams bring everybody to a mediocre compromise, which is usually not what you're looking for. Uh, we can help people who are creative to flourish by embracing their weirdness, right? We gotta be more weird tolerant. I mean, we're, it, these days I think it's called neurodiversity is kind of the, the hot word, but, but you don't even have to be neurodiverse. We gotta find a way to be more tolerant of weird people because weird people often have weird ideas and every idea that has changed things was at one point weird. We can help build self-efficacy for people through lowering the price of failure and giving them an opportunity for early wins. That means when you see someone struggling with something and your inclination is to jump in and help them, and I get it because that builds social bonds and makes them feel like they're in a trusted and nurturing environment, 
but it undermines self-efficacy. So sometimes what you ought to do, if you think they actually could get it done on their own, if you think there's a possibility they can solve that problem on their own, stand back and just say, hey, you can do it. I have faith in you. I have absolute faith you can get this. That's, this one's super important with kids, but it's also important just in your own work life. Make up your mind you can overcome obstacles. Study hero stories, because humans are wired for vicarious learning, right? We learn, you learn what you can eat and what you can jump over and what will kill you and what won't kill you, not by experiencing all of those things. That would obviously be very inefficient. You learn it from watching other people, right? This is how our species is wired. And as a result, that means hero stories teach us about what we are capable of, right? When we read about other people overcoming obstacles, we're learning. I could probably do that, right? So it's they're valuable. No, um, oh, I had that up there as a bullet point. Should have just clicked on that. We can also cultivate ambitious goals that tap our ideals. You know, somebody asked me a question a couple of months ago, simple question, and it got me thinking, and it, and it made me realize this is a really great way to get people to tap their inner moonshot. Right, you've, you've all got at least one moonshot in you. Some of you might have several moonshots in you. Someone asked me the other day, this is actually not my moonshot, but I'm gonna show you the question. They said, what's the one thing you would do that would fundamentally transform New York? What's one thing you could do that you think would completely transform New York in a positive way? And I thought about it all day. And I was thinking about it, and I came to the conclusion, make the subway free. Right? There are all these people who are underemployed or unemployed who don't have access to work because they're limited by transportation. I mean, the subway is pretty cheap, but it's not cheap enough for someone who is unemployed. Anyway, that was just the, the point of me saying that is really to say, ask yourself a question like that or get someone else to ask you. What is something you want to change in the world? What is something you think should be different in the world? And then ask yourself, okay, at a high level, what would it take? What are the things that have to get done? What are the obstacles? And once you identify the obstacles, say, I can overcome them. Be like Elon Musk. Just make up your mind. If I put my mind to it and stick with it long enough, I can overcome any obstacle. So cultivate those ambitious, big, long-term goals. They'll make you a bigger thinker. And uh, the last piece, this is something we can do individually. It's also something we can do in businesses, and it's something that governments can work on. Let's find ways to connect people to the intellectual and technological resources they need to execute their ideas. If Dean Kamen's story should teach you anything, it should teach you that, wow, a lot of important science innovation comes from non-scientists, from people who didn't take the typical linear trajectory there's more Dean Caymans out there. We just have to find a way to connect them to the resources they need. I've recently written about women. I think one of the things that is hard for women is that if you take time off to have kids, it's incredibly hard to get back onto a career trajectory, especially in science, because in science, they generally expect you to enter a PhD program young, right, a couple years out of undergrad, to stick with it. And if you leave that path, it's really hard to get back in. When we get applications from people who've had 10 years in the workforce and bounced around different companies, or maybe they've took some time off, we don't take those applications very seriously. And we should. Because you know what? Women coming back in the workforce, that's a huge undertapped resource. So there are a lot of people out there we can actually connect to resources that they need and we can help more people become more innovative. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. 
And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.